listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 136 is Mark Bingham, best known as a New Orleans producer for folks like Glenn Branca, John Schofield, Flat Duo Jets, etc. If you recall the happy little string thing at the beginning of R.E.M.'s Shiny Happy People, he arranged that. He is a singer, songwriter, guitarist, composer, arranger, who was actually signed to a label in L.A. as a teenager in 1966, released one single there, I Can't Find It, went to college in Indiana, where he was a member of Screaming Gypsy Bandits. You're right now hearing Flies Are All Around Me, a 1970 recording released on an album eventually called Back to Doghead. From the mid to late 70s, he was in New York as a member of the Social Climbers, moved to New Orleans in 1982. His first solo album came out in 1989. We'll be talking about PissOffGod.com from his second solo album, Psalms of Vengeance, 2009, then looking at one of the many production-slash-collaboration gigs he did this one with Ed Sanders from the Fugs called Poems from New Orleans 2007. The song is called Ash Wednesday and Lent. And then we'll look back to the Social Climbers from their 1981 album. The song is That's Why. We'll conclude by listening to what he's doing right now. He's a member of Michaud's Melody Makers, a Cajun band. Their second album from 2020 is called Cosmic Cajuns from Saturn. And we'll listen to the improvisational song Blood Moon. If you want to learn more about this podcast, please look at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And to support us to hear ad-free versions of all these episodes, look to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. So I will have played a little bit of Flies Are All Around Me, the opening track from Screaming Gypsy Bandits Back to Doghead. I know that you had one album that was released with that band at the time. This was not it, that this was recordings from before that, back from 1970. Very Zappa-esque. We're music school people. We were on the same bill with Beefheart, ah. November 1970. Anything at that point that was slightly not down the middle and had some theatrical elements was Zappa. So it was kind of a hard thing to deal with because, first off, Zappa was like 50 times better than we were. <laughs> and we did more ridiculous theatrical stuff. We had professional wrestling on stage. We actually reenacted some of the war in the Middle East. We had two Arabs and two Jews in the band and they beat the shit out of each other. And then a woman ran on stage in a superhero outfit and beat the shit out of the men. It was fun. The singer was a legit contemporary classical singer. We had a lot of deep stuff to go into. And so flies are all around me. That just came out of, I think, we were sitting around probably on mescaline, I would think, because I think after we wrote that song, we listened to Wagner and started crying. So, you know, that makes sense, right? <laughs> so I wanted to get that little burst of early stuff out there to kind of, you know, where you're starting from. But we're going to get to, so this is your last solo album to date, 2009 Psalms of Vengeance. And the song that I picked off of that was PissOffGod.com. I thought it was the most instrumentally interesting and it's very intense. Do you have sort of a few opening words about that before the folks hear it in full and then we can talk in more detail? I remember, I think I was just having a rough time, man. I started that record early, like 98. And then it was like, I kept working on it, then thought it was done. And originally it was called Undo because that was such a cute thing on computers then, you know? And <laughs> But then that became a total cliche by the time it was right. So then the record sat there and then I went back and fixed it again. And Chris Stamey mixed that. That's the only one in that record that was mixed. And he did a great job. And then the guy in uh, Chapel Hill, Brent Lambert, mastered it. You know, that's a beautiful piece. I like the 12-string stuff. But on the other hand, now I feel like, uh, you know, the Bible is a virus and we all got sick. I mean, that's kind of like some old idea, you know.
So I really like this, just right from the, the get-go, this military snare, 12-string guitar thing. I was trying to think if there are names for these rhythms. They're probably named after dances, but this one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one. Like, I use that a lot in various things, but I don't know if it has a name. In the New Orleans thing, I don't know what they call it, New Orleans, but it's, it's in Cuba, too. Cuba does it. New Orleans does it. That's one of the rare things that cross over, because... I work with Cubans. They couldn't play the New Orleans stuff. They could not go that. They could not do it. They had to play it perfectly metronomic because they're, you know, Russian trained. They forced to go to school for eight hours a day studying music. And all these cats could sight read Stravinsky. But whatever that beat is called, I don't know. It's the modified. It's a different version of the dozens of variations on, you know, Hey Pocky and that sort of thing. And then what is this? I wrote record scratch percussion, but it's clearly not record scratch. It's some...
That's my guitar. Oh, okay. So guitar through what kind of effect makes? Like I just did a piece where I made my guitar sound like oboes and French horns. Okay. Using filters. And because I didn't have an oboe and a French horn player. And, you know, it's all about the overtone series. You know, like a flute has consonants and the oboe and all that. And English horn have really dissonant overtones. So you just can like mess with it until it, and then you mix them with a bunch of other stuff and hardly tell the difference. So it adds a little psychedelic thing, but then you've got this, I guess, in keeping with the sort of Spanish soundtrack thing, this pizzicato string. Was this people that you already had in for a session? Rick Perlis was the, he was classically trained. Okay. But I met him when I worked with the New Orleans Klezmer All-Stars in the 90s. Rick left that band. That band was, you know, ambitious and he was sort of older and more uh, stable or whatever. Didn't want to go riding around in vans. And he was a lawyer. Okay, so it's just one guy rather than like, because it sounds like a string section, but you just overdubbed him. I might be only one of him. I don't know that there's a whole bunch of him. Certainly that riff, but then even, I don't know, there are a couple places where there's just a string orchestral hit, you know, that you might even have a sample. I didn't use any samples. Okay. I don't think so. I think James Al Sanders is playing the drums, who's one of the great drummers who has disappeared off the face of the earth. And he was an early, he just thought that the world was out to get him for being a young black man. And he just started hiding. And he won't go online and he won't have a cell phone. And he, James, if you're listening out there, get a hold of me. I owe you money. <laughs> so when we get to the first chorus and there is no one left, there's no one here, you, you introduce this the harmony in this song is super pitch corrected, that share effect <laughs> tightening up. There is no one here. Everybody's gonna hell in a tears. What made you choose that for this message, Fire and Brimstone? I don't know. That record, I know on another song on the Earth Cracks, I did some auto tune in the middle and I thought it was really funny just to do this pentatonic scale and have the autotune would pull it. And it was not like the share. I mean, the share thing's pretty extreme. <laughs> this isn't that extreme. This is just more like, I don't know why I did anything in certain respects. I mean, last week I mixed a record and it'd be hard for me to tell you why I chose this or that to use on the vocal or what. I, I think it works really well. And I'm trying to kind of figure out why it's that brittleness of the parallel octaves and there's something weird going on with the high one like that's all it needs it could be any number of effects and it would get something like that you know it's kind of like ghosts singing ancestors are singing along you know? well and it saves you the trouble of getting in like a female vocalist with a different voice these are still you singing the high parts or am i wrong about this yeah no it should be me singing the high okay <laughs> on that record there are a few female vocalists that have popped in especially jaleesa anderson I don't think she's on that song. So after the first verse, the transition to get us to the second verse, there's kind of an interesting, sort of like the intro, but a combination of stuff ending with a, I wrote, passing guitar solo, that it's very short. <laughs> yeah, just nice little vistas passing there. No guitar solo this. The beginning of that was the thing that I thought sounded like an orchestral hit. It's clearly not like the, it's not the disco effect, but it's this, you know, which sounds like more than one guy or at least overdubbed. I would use these cheese ball pitch things too, that would give you three notes at once. Mm. Imagine I get Rick Perlis in there and I, Rick does like four takes. So then I go through and I edit and I've got four takes of Rick. And then I start saying, you know, that lick, it's a freaking A minor for 20 years. So, and then I can take any of the licks from anywhere. It's in the same time. So I probably maybe layered a few. And then I had different effects on him in different space. So, I mean, I think it's interesting to go where you don't have the same reverb. You might have a different instrument, but it sounds completely different in five different spots of the song. I think that seems totally fine now. In terms of filling that space that we, you know, with the two different guitar sounds and the, those two different string things, was it just that you wrote it with, okay, I've got eight bars, whatever it is there, and I'll figure out after I record it what it's going to be there? Or do you map these things out more definitely? I mean, it really is not done till it's done, and I'll just keep editing. I'll be taking stuff out right till the end. Mm. And it's more taking stuff out than adding stuff. So that actually could have been shortened, that you might have left more space than that. Yeah, no, I'm constantly editing, editing. I totally understand taking out that bass player overplayed there. I'll take out his one riff, but actually removing measures, 
Then you have the whole how to make the drums sound continuous and stuff like that. I know how to do that. (laughs) (laughs) And especially when they're playing the same riff. Yes. And I assume there's a click track going on or no? If there was a click track, I'm not sure. A lot of times, like the initial track will be, I'll have an electric guitar going and I'll have a delay on it. And you stay with the delay and that becomes the click track. Right. You can't budge. You can't rush it or else the delay starts turning into jello. Although that delay that you did at the beginning, the thing that I thought was the record scratch percussion, that's sort of purposefully not quite in sync with the song. Like, that's just an effect. Yeah, that's a different thing. But I'm saying just in terms of playing along with things. Yeah. I mean, there's, what's the famous band from Ireland? Me Too. You Too. (laughs) (laughs) Me Too. They do that. I mean, that's how they cut tracks. And I think it's the edges delay that is the click track. But yeah, I could be wrong. Yeah, I think we've gotten most of the sonic elements here. I mean, there's a spazzy organ solo in here that's very sizzling that I really like. What we think we have to consider is that maybe Chris Stamey did some of this weird stuff, and I don't even remember. <laughs> oh, okay. Because <laughs> he mixed it, but probably not. Okay, so at 145, the song just completely stops. And then when it comes back, you have this organ thing. Let me just play a little of that. Which again, yeah, this could have been a mixing decision. With, in fact, two organ sounds that you've got one that's coming in and you think that's going to be the solo, but no, it's some other part of the organ. Well, yeah, I had a good organ there. So that was good. Oh, so <laughs> that was I, you playing that solo or? I think it's Trevor Brooks. Okay. When you can layer things like that. And it's not like you're using two parts all the time, but suddenly one melts in under the other and all. Well, and I noticed, so you had a judicious use of cowbell to do, like, now we're in the second verse and we're going to bang, bang, bang on the cowbell <laughs> on the quarters throughout. To add a little variety there, let's just play a little bit of the end. I wrote vocoder noises, psychedelic. Let's see what that actually is. So more guitar weirdness, but then is that actually a vocoder? That There's words. No, I didn't ever had a vocoder. Oh, okay. John Bouquet is in there somewhere too. So some digital effect on the vocal of some sort to add that. I have cassette decks that I run things through, tape machines that I run. You know, I was still using tape echo then. It wasn't all just Pro Tools, so. Can we briefly treat the lyrics before we go on? So I, I'm trying to figure out, is this just mostly an impressionistic song that you've got the hook, you've got the Bible, the overall mood? Because I'm trying to figure out, like, is this a story about a woman who's in a car crash, but then that's kind of abandoned by the next verse? Any idea of <laughs> what this song is about? No, it's like, you know, and you're right. There's always a monster behind the door. You don't know if it's going to open the door and bite you or not. And in this case, it just stays behind the door the whole song, but you feel it. I guess even just that central, uh, everybody's going to heaven in a river of tears. Everybody's gone. So this is a a post-apocalyptic mood. Yeah. Using this to reflect the mood you were in, you were saying that... (laughs) Weird, it was my, I mean, maybe I'm a precog. It was like right before the Katrina hit. Let's stop for a minute and talk about our sponsors. I'm very excited to share my relaxation with you about our first sponsor, Headspace. I've just checked out their site and did their first guided meditation. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness. You get these pleasant guided meditations from Andy Puttikomb, a Buddhist monk who has traveled the world learning this stuff. And you get these through an easy-to-use app. It's got features like wind-down sessions to help you fall asleep, morning meditations you could even do with your kids. If you're feeling stressed, you're feeling overwhelmed, you're about to record a podcast, they've got a three-minute SOS meditation for you. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, increase your overall sense of well-being. And Headspace is one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. There are 25 published studies on its benefits. It's gotten 600,000 five-star reviews, over 60 million downloads, and I have just started using it, but I'm going to update you in future ads as my experience continues. I definitely got a great enough initial impression that I'm going to make this part of my daily routine for at least a little bit going here. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice 
with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule, anytime, anywhere. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash N-E-M. That's headspace.com slash N-E-M for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal being offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash N-E-M today. I'm also always very happy to talk about Masterclass, which provides your access to world-class masters, offering classes through your phone, web, smart TV on many topics, from writing to style to gardening, so much cooking. You really should be cooking better stuff during the pandemic, shouldn't you? And of course, I've told you about some of the wonderful ones they have by musicians, St. Vincent. Herbie Hancock, Carlos Santana, Danny Elfman, Dead Mouse, really any kind of music, whether you already like it or want to get more into that kind of music, going to be some really interesting stuff here. This time, I actually took time with Billy Collins teaches reading and writing poetry. And though obviously he's not talking about song lyrics, it's really applicable. And of course, in a song, you can just sell the thing by a nice guitar intro or whatever. But in poetry, you got nothing. You got to use entirely the words to draw your reader in to set up something that will sustain them through multiple stanzas, to really develop your subject matter. Man, every lyric writer should study poetry. This is a great way in. I would not have discovered it if not for Masterclass. I think you'll love it once you check it out. And as a Nakedly Examined Music listener, you can get an annual membership to Masterclass and give one to someone else for free. Get unlimited access to every Masterclass for you and a friend right now. Just go to masterclass.com slash examined. That's masterclass.com slash examined. Finally, another new sponsor, ExpressVPN. I used a VPN for work. I had no idea why anyone would want one in their home, and I'm so glad that I have tried out this service. A main thing, the thing that I'm supposed to tell you about is holiday movies. We're entering that time of year. Maybe you're a Netflix subscriber. You want to watch Elf. It's not on there. I installed the ExpressVPN program in like a minute, and it lets you choose where the internet thinks that you are dialing in from. I told it I was in Australia, and Elf is on Australian Netflix. And South Park for the Mr. Hanky Christmas special. Doctor Who, their season five A Christmas Carol episode is on UK Netflix. Switch over to France. And hey, Gremlins is there. Tell it you're in Canada. You can watch Four Christmases. Man, I right now don't get the channel that lets me get Star Trek Discovery. And here it is already on Netflix, something I'm paying for. Heck, they even still have the show Friends streaming there. You can choose from almost 100 countries. Imagine all the Netflix libraries you can explore. And of course, it's not just Netflix. It works with any streaming service, Disney+, Plus, Hulu, BBC, iPlayer, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there. But the reason to use ExpressVPN, it's just ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering. You can always stream in HD. And it works with all your devices, your phones, your tablets, media consoles, smart TVs. Use it to watch whatever you want on the go or on the big screen. If you used my special link right now, expressvpn.com slash NEM, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. So support the show, watch what you want, get your holiday fix at expressvpn.com slash NEM. All right, let's get back to the interview. Okay, so I was wondering uh, about the progression there. So the second song we're going to go to is from Ash Wednesday and Lent. So this is from Poems from New Orleans by Ed Sanders from The Fugs, who I enjoy. He wrote a musical. He wrote a series of poems. You've got a very elaborate orchestrations on this stuff. He wrote all these poems for New Orleans. The title says it all. There's a guy named Michael Minzer in Dallas that I've worked with for years off and on, who's put out all these poetry records, largely in conjunction with Hal Wilner. And this was one that I did without Hal. So essentially, I got all the poems, and I got to put music to them. Ed came down, we recorded the poems, timed it out, figured out what music fit with what. Some of them, we did a few of them with Ed, actually, along with the music. Like when we did the Allen Ginsberg stuff, that was like live with the band. But Ed's stuff was often placing it afterwards, because you know, Ed speaks very slowly, so you have to sometimes you have to chop his cadence up a little bit and get it get it moving. But this Ash Wednesday in Lent, I remember Tim Green is on it, Rick Perlis, Helen Jalay, James Alsander's on drums again. There's a tuba player named John Gross, and Fred Sanders, I think is still is now the deacon of a church in Dallas, and he's playing piano. It's beautiful. Can't remember who else is on there. Oh, Andrew Bam, Drew Bam from Big Sam's Funky Nation is on the trumpet. So I put a nice band together. 
basically wrote out parts and people played them. All right, let's play it. Ash Wednesday and Lent. We partied for five straight days and nights until the morning of the smeared ash. I fell upon my flood-scarred knees by the spot where everything had washed away. I begged the earth for forgiveness, beseeched the sky for lengthened moments, importuned the milieu for just a hint of spirit. And then somehow I felt a flow of bliss. It only lasted for 30 minutes, but I knew it would come again, 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 on the day of the ashen skin above the lids, when my aluminum boat would no longer have to be used, even among the spirits, and my children would always believe in their daddy and mommy, and the Egyptian sun boat would always transverse the water to escape the snake. Seven Wednesdays, and then the third day when the two sad Marys once came to the cave of the rolling rock. No matter how much we gambled, demanded the women pull up their dresses, drank absinthe, and sprayed gold paint on our dongs, the fingers of those forty days of penance and charity still ran themselves within where we think, the place where our grandmothers were sure eternity sang. And now where we'll be alone in the fullest commixture of everything that ever was in the ever. Yeah, so the whole thing is a kind of a nightclub jazz thing passing between tenor sax led and then trumpet led and then, strangely enough, cello and violin being the last solo instruments. So that is a novelty that is rising out of there. You're expecting it to pass it back to the tenor or something. And no, it's actually a beautiful cello part. See, I never thought of it as a nightclub thing at all. I mean, I just thought of it as kind of like Mardi Gras over. It's this sort of hungover, mournful thing. And maybe with having the sax come in there, it, it does feel like sort of 1958 round midnight vibey, but. So you're playing off the poem, we partied for five straight days and nights. This is a debauched party run way too long beyond the limits of sensibility. Right. Takes off his pants and he covers his schlong with gold paint, you know. Yeah, I noticed that part. Right, that's right where the cello comes in. Let me actually play that moment, 138. <laughs> the women pull up their dresses, drank absinthe, and sprayed gold paint on our dongs. The fingers of those 40 days of penance and charity still ran themselves. The prettiest part of the song comes in on that line. I thought that was very funny. Chocolate on the sushi. Yeah. <laughs> and then where the violin comes in a little later, I, I was a little curious about whether you processed the hell out of this. This is about 208. Ever was in the ever. Yeah, it seems really hard to mix a violin into a, I don't want to call it a big band, but a brass ensemble. Did you octaver it or something? A lot of these things that were end up close mic that I, I had a big room and I would reamp and throw stuff back out into the room, give it a whole nother flavor. And, you know, I'm used to that. Like, you know, what's the guy's name? Charlie Barnum that plays with Steven Bernstein. I've worked with him on stuff. So I, violin in the middle of horns, it seems kind of normal to me. And same with Klezmer All-Stars, violin-driven with horns. Maybe it's a New Orleans thing. Also with Blood Ulmer, we did Charlie was in that band, so it was like violin. But there were no horns in that band, just strings. 
Yeah, well, I mean, in that, it's kind of like, obviously, you can do this with miking and reverb and things, but it's like the violin player appearing on the mountain <laughs> to shine above the rest of the band there. Yeah, well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> in this case, the record guy was there with me, you know, so I was mixing it, and he tended to want Ed louder than I thought it was proper, but it ended up that way. Some of the choices, I'm not sure. Music and text is really a difficult thing to do. The poetry, because your brain processes them differently, you know, and you, you're sitting around grooving out on music or you're listening to someone speak. But both together, that's not a song per se, is a different animal. You know? Right. I'm thinking about like Laurie Anderson or something where she does all these poems. And usually the music is very ambient, is very just continuous. But this is a full on, like, I think this would really work if you just got rid of the vocal entirely still because there's enough melodic content in the solo instruments that you have peeking out that it's, there's no necessary space. Well, it was a piece. It was something that I was working on before this. And I was like, aha, a lot of things you have, like I have songs that I wrote 40 years ago that I just, oh, now this is functional. There's some reason for this to exist now. And 40 years ago, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? So I think this is one of those pieces where I started writing this piece like after one of my kids was born, just sort of staring at the kid in the crib, you know, thinking how amazing it was. And it had some words. And then I just eventually, I never did anything with it because it was like, ah, what am I going to do with that? So is there a demo of this floating around somewhere? Good question. I'm not sure. I've had so many hard drive crashes in the last couple <laughs> of years. Just interesting how you break up the sections in here. Again, thinking as if this was a, a Laurie Anderson, let's just hold on a synth note for a long time. No, that this is a piece that has a structure. It has, so I wrote about 36 seconds in the cadence, sort of what's ending the first section. I beg the earth for forgiveness, beseech the sky for lengthened moments. Importune. Just when it does that, no, no, and now we're going to move to a different section and a different key. And that comes back a few times, something like that. You're writing with a completely different chordal vocabulary that I'm hearing in your solo stuff. What are you channeling here? Do you know in terms of the chord structure and the orchestration? I mean, I can go in the other room and play someone to watch over me or something for you. Know, I can sure. play standards. So, I mean, I know that vocabulary to a certain extent. And I always was writing these jazzy. If you go back, like some of the early early 70s stuff like there's the Caroline Payton who was the lead singer mm -hmm. in Jesse Bandits there's a record of hers called Mock Up and there's a lot of very odd chords and similar feel to this song on that record I think I just made weirder substitutions when I was like 20 years old then I later on I realized oh all music is the same what am I doing you know I'm trying to be different. I'm not going to change pop music by putting flat five subs in pop songs. It took me a long time to figure that out. But on the other hand, it works. Like some piece like this, I'll just sit down and follow my nose and something comes out. And then I'm never really sure why. And then I have the skills to edit and correct and make things work better. Oh, this needs a bridge. Oh, this needs this. But often just doing it, I don't know. It's still baffling to me. But I did train. I mean, I was in bands with really great people. I always had John Schofield to save my ass on a number of occasions where I'm writing an arrangement and I'd be like, what do I do with this? You know, and he'd say, oh, try this. He taught me how to play the bridge to Brilliant Corners on the one of the Wilner records. Otherwise, I could not figure it out. And he showed me the fingering. It was very difficult. So I've never been a jazzer because so many of my friends were like, they were great and they made a living doing it. I wasn't going to do that. So I'd be somebody that's kind of like dabbles in it. I know what it is, but nobody's going to pay to listen to me play a jazz solo, you know? Well, that was nice. Yeah, to hear, nice to hear all that Schofield work on your first solo album, the 1989's I Passed for Human. And let's continue sort of backward in time so that you've, the reason I guess that Psalms of Vengeance came out finally when it did, 2009, was that because of the growth and interest with doing this stuff related to New Orleans? And I'm sorry, did you actually appear in the, the TV show Treme or is it just your studio? Yeah, I was in there. But okay. Treme was a few years after that. I think I waited so long because, you know, there was nobody clamoring for Mark Bingham records. I didn't really know what to do. I was busy making records with other people and I would play now and then or. I didn't really think that I was having a career and I would do all those, you know, Psalms of Vengeance was done in, you know, spare time. 
when somebody was around and, oh, you want to play on this? Okay. Was it with that 1989 album or was it earlier with what we're about to talk about with the Social Climbers, 1981, early 80s, where you actually were like, this is my push to be the rock star. And if this doesn't work, then I'll do something else. Well, I don't think I ever had that simply because I got a record deal when I was 17. And by the time I was 19, I was washed up. So I understood. And I lived in Hollywood. The people that were on my block, Eric Clapton, Joni Mitchell, Nico, Incredible String Band. The guy I lived with was a producer named Fraser Mohawk. And Ezra Mohawk, you know, lived there in the house too. You know, and I worked at Electra and I saw... So I basically said, when I was 19, I realized being a rock star was not something I ever wanted to do. So I essentially went back to Indiana. I joined this band. I ended up in the Screaming Gypsy Bandits. I went back to school. I studied Buddhism. I studied some Zanakas was there, and I got to learn stuff from him. But there was never an instance where I saw that there was anything to make. There's no place to go. There's no linear career path. It's up, down, and all around. And you try to find good people to work with. Pretty simple. All right. So you're talking about the time in Indiana with Screaming Gypsy Bandits and sort of this very sprawling, I said Zappa-like, but let's be more generous than that. It's in the spirit of the times. It's musically adventurous. A lot of members, a lot of people on stage doing crazy stuff. And then somehow you get to New York and we're going to talk about That's Why from the one Social Climbers album, 1981 which is very, I guess they call it no wave, but it's a new wave band. It sort of has some talking heads in Devo. If you like that kind of stuff, it's in the same general family and certainly the same chronology. Because this sounds like, okay, we're actually, it's still adventurous, but it's very focused. A lot of the songs, the one that I picked, that's why, is more musically sprawling. There's more sections. Whereas a lot of them are kind of, here's one riff that we're doing over and just making, you know, it's more of a power concision approach. Okay, that started out as a band with two bass players. First gig was two bass players, and that's it. There was a guy in the crowd named Dick Kinnett who heard it and liked it and said, oh, maybe I'll play with you guys. Okay, whatever. So he had a place to rehearse, so we started doing it. Next thing you know, we were using a drum machine, and we're trying to, like, the trick was to start and stop the drum machine in interesting places so the groove would feel not but it would, you know, where you put the one is is everything, right? It started with that. That band did all kinds of things. We got an art gallery gig and we played pop classics from the 20th century. We played all kinds of stuff. For We played for five hours, nonstop, all covers. But we did Eric Satie. We did Bach. We did this. We did that. We did Glenn Branca was there. We did Glenn Branca. So when we started constructing songs in the studio, and then things got a little tightened up. But for me, by the time I did that band, it was, I was tired of moving drums. I had been in Indiana for six years, whatever, and and I was just like, I'm going to do something different. And we were doing a lot of different things other than that band at that point. And we played for dances. So it was like a dance band, essentially, you know, with a drum machine. And that's why, it's funny that that you picked that one, because people pick out Certain songs off of there, Chicken 80 gets played, you know, and... Yeah, that's the one with a more of a, like, talking heads groove to it. One bass line that, and everything moves around the bass that does the same thing for four minutes. All right, well, let's play That's Why, which truthfully, I, the reason I picked this is because it's the only song, it was on a compilation, so, like, I could actually get it on Spotify and purchase a copy of it easily, whereas the other ones I can't. I would have to order a CD... <laughs> Oh, 
So the intro, that's probably my favorite part because you've got a nice guitar solo. Yeah, let me just play the intro here so we can talk about your drum machine rhythm choices, let's say. Which actually, it's a variation off that the same rhythm for the first song, but it changes a little in the second verse. Yeah, were you trying to like, I'm going to use the clave instead of the snare? I, you, just anything to make it non-typical, but still groovy. We had one drum machine at that point. Then we ended up getting three and locking them together. And we never had one that was programmable. So we were always connecting it to whatever it would do. Like you press three buttons at once and you get a whole different animal. And Dick Kinnett really had a lot to, he was really fastidious about his drum machine, where one came in and all that. He really heard it. You know, we didn't want to have it just. So I think we were constantly moving around. And, you know, if you, but say you get to the middle and you add an extra two beats to a bar, suddenly the drum machine's in a different place. So you get used to that and it makes the song build. And So that nice intro part, that doesn't come in like that's the bridge. That's the, the chord progression that's in the bridge. It's not in most of the song. Was that written as a bridge first? And then like, hey, let's make that the intro too. Or do you have any idea at this point? No, that was always the intro. Okay. But it gets very quickly. So 19 seconds in to the, uh, you know, goes double time to the main part. I went to a Yellow Man gig and then I went in the studio the next day channeling Yellow Man. Okay. I mean, I was thinking Devo, but everybody was using those synths at that time. To make that the lead instrument, you know, that really stripped down that you could be doing something florid and and lovely with your guitar as you just did in the intro. But like, no, let's make the the main riff something that we can do with one finger. Well, this was really a minimalist band for sure. I mean, we were more maximal and musical than most of the bands. So we weren't really in the no wave scene. Ardo, what was the no wave scene? Ardo and portions. I don't know what any of that stuff means, really. (laughs) So then you come in, even though the music is minimalist, it sets up its little quirky dance clave heavy riff there, which is very uncool. Like it's sort of consciously uncool. But then you've got this Captain Beefheart esque vocal persona that comes soon after this, sometimes singing, but a lot of times like delivering this rant mixed kind of low. Do you know what was going on with your vocal choices at the time? And were you writing lyrics first? Throughout that whole record, there's this little. What are you doing? Hey, hey. In every song, there's this Greek chorus of this. It came from when I lived in Hollywood, there was a woman on my block who walked up and down the block all day, every day, and said one thing. She said, I don't care if they get married. Do you? No, I don't care if they get married. Do you care if they get married? That's all she said. So over the years, I was like, so I threw that as sort of through all the songs. That's a through composed thing, except Palm Springs, the instrumental doesn't have the, the crazy person. But as far as vocal stuff, I can sing real high. I can sing real low. It just depends on whatever. And that, like I said, I think I went to see Yellow Man and I was like all reggae out from Yellow Man was so astounding with a four piece band at that point. And so I uh, probably came back in and went, ah, I'll be your detective man in the back, you know. <laughs> Okay, that's what that is. <laughs> that, the, the, the reggae is not only in the music, but in that vocal style as well. And do we know what this story, I guess I didn't, until the end where you're actually singing with your background vocalists, and it's clear you're saying, that's why I look at a girl. I, I wasn't even, I thought it was celebrity girls. I didn't know what they were saying. That's why I'm your kind of girl. I'm your kind of, okay. And why are the vocals bad? I don't know, people have always given me trouble about making my vocals too low. And I don't know. We played that song live some, and it was pretty good. See, the thing is, I might have sang it completely different the next night, but that's what ended up on that record. Uh, You were just ahead of your time. That's right around the time of, like, emotional rescue, and... Yeah. It will be mine, you'll be mine, you will be mine all in my... You know, so I was like, Mick Jagger, aside from being the greatest Don Covey impersonator and all that, he always had some funny shit that he did with his voice, you know? He didn't take himself too seriously. So, and this is that whole thing of the singer not realizing he's not Caruso or Eddie Vedder or whatever. <laughs> Let me play some of the bridge where we get back to that original chords, but then you have your most singing part in the middle of this. Big 
Yeah, so it's pure Jagger until that, as I'm walking through, when it becomes... Well, I sang Duke of Earl. That's the words to the... Oh. As I walk through this world, I can stop the Duke of Earl. You are my girl. And no one can hurt you. Okay, so it's maybe it's this character basically singing, <laughs> singing to yeah, himself. The whole record is in some kind of character, but the character is obviously schizophrenic. So you know. <laughs> I feel so barbaric. I feel so barbaric. Yeah, very diverse album. You mentioned the instrumental on there that it, I think of them as Zappa-esque chords, but more general jazz chords. The instrumental is. One riff over and over, and after each repeat, there's one more bar space. So first there's a bar, then there's two, then there's three. By the end, there's like, it's really hard to play on stage. You have to sit there. Okay, this is 16. Done, two, three, four, two. You know, and it's just hanging there, and the organs hanging back. Very difficult piece to play, but. I like that one a lot. Hello, Texas is probably my favorite on this album. It wasn't as interesting musically. I didn't want to use it here, but like it's sort of the most continuous with your later work that maybe just the Southern influence, which I guess transitions us to the last thing. I guess I want to talk to you more about what you're doing now musically, the fact that you're in a band, Michaud's Melody Makers, the second album, Cosmic Cajuns from Saturn has just come out. We were going to end by playing the group composition here, Blood Moon, but I really want to direct folks what, the second album is live, the first album is studio. And so the first album, I just found really tight. I mean, I really enjoy the second one, but I don't know. I'm always a sucker for the, the studio exactness. What really excited you about that to make you actually be in a band for the first time in so many years? I've been working with those guys, and they were really great people. One thing I loved about them, which is a good reason to be in a band with people, is spending all the time in the studio. I never heard them dump on any other musicians or come up with any negative stuff at all. And this really impressed me. They were handling their business and doing their music. And they weren't concerned with any scenes or they weren't victims. They weren't railing against anything, which I thought, this is amazing. And they're doing great music. So Louis said, we're melody makers are playing it down the street. Come and sit in if you want. So the minute we started playing, it was really great. Then it was like, I was want to come and do this gig. By the time we did the record, The Blood Moon, we had never had a rehearsal, and I didn't really know the names of the songs even. And I was just playing totally by ear. And when we got in the studio, Corey Ritchie is a really good producer and good musician and was in the Lost by Ramblers for years and is in that some band in New York LCD sound system. But anyway, he came back to produce this. And so they went through their usual routine. And uh, a lot of the grooves, there's a guitar thing that dang, 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 they call it rice pumping. So Brian, the bass player, is a brilliant young musician. He did all the rice pumping, essentially because I didn't know the tunes. And I was at that point still sort of the uh, semi-Adrian Ballou stuntman. Then what happened? The tracks got cut. I played live with stuff in a room. We weren't hardly listening to it on the playback. I got an idea. I did three or four passes on it on all six or seven tunes or whatever they were. It was all tracked in two days. And then Corey picked out what he liked. That was it. Yeah, very fresh sounding, obviously traditional. So are all those on the first album traditional songs? I don't really know. Okay. All right. Well, I know on this second album, on this, so we're going to end by listening to Blood Moon. So this is the one that you have a co-writing credit on because it was a jam at the time. Six minutes long and very chaotic, but very cool. I like playing like a minor third away from wherever Louis is and, and then coming back in the same key at some point. And I like playing in two different keys at once on top of each other. It always sounds normal to me. But, you know. Well, very energetic music. Sounds like this would be a super fun show. Is there going to be more touring eventually when this... It's possible. We played a gig last week. Oh, okay. In a big backyard, and they had a stage built there, and the audience was at least 20 feet away, and they were all, some of them were sitting right next to each other because they lived together and stuff, but people were six feet apart and all that whole deal. So that was the first time we played a gig, but that's a rarity, and that's sort of like a, it was a hidden gig, you know? So what else is on the horizon? Are you, is there another 
partially done solo album that's been lurking around for a decade? Or Well, you're going to get it now because there's this label called Louisiana Red Hot and they're putting out almost 200 songs are coming out again. So they'll all be back out again by the first of the year. And there'll be like five or six on CD and the rest just streaming. A lot of instrumentals, a lot of... I've got a whole record of, I could call it Music Minus Ed. It's the poems for New Orleans without the and uh, And I remixed that, made some of it shorter. Okay, because some of that would work. Some of that, like, clearly sounded like I'm playing the same riff over and over again so he can finish the poem. <laughs> but I guess that would that's what editing is for. What editing is for. And then, yeah, and then there's... I have a bunch of new stuff and that I'm still working on. And, yeah, and I'm mastering things and then making data MP3s so people can get them and see what's going on, you know. In theory, we'll make one boutique vinyl that has 18 minutes aside of a best of. I don't know who's going to pick that. I'm not going <laughs> to. But otherwise, yeah, come around the first of the year, there'll be a bunch of stuff come out. Well, wonderful. Thanks so much for doing this. It was really fun uh, immersing myself in your very, very diverse career here and still manageable. It was not 20 albums. Yeah, it's interesting that I'm not being uh, withholding or anything. I say some stuff even though I went and looked at all these things and thought about them and listened to him and thought, oh, you're going to touch them. I still had no real good answers for half the stuff you asked me because I don't know. It was great. Have a great rest of your day. I really appreciate you having me on and all the work that you did. This is a song called Blood Moon.
Thanks so much, Mark. Really interesting career. I will link from the blog post at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com associated with this episode to some of his other work, like he mentioned doing music under the poet Allen Ginsberg, doing some projects with Hal Wilner, like the Kurt Vile tribute album Lost in the Stars that had Lou Reed and Sting and so many people on it. He mentioned the Caroline Payton solo albums that he did in the early 70s that was one of the singers for the Screaming Gypsy Bandits. He does not have a website that I can find but go ahead, look them up on allmusic.com or Wikipedia if you're curious. I hope you are subscribed directly to this podcast. You can look up Nakedly Examined Music on your podcast app of choice or find all the links at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I, of course, would appreciate your support. Patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic features an ad-free feed. My next interview will be with another producer, Brian Coleman, who, like Mark, is connected to lots of wonderful musicians that you will have heard of, but you may not have heard his very literate, very musically educated solo albums, and thanks to Howard Wolfing for setting up both these interviews. Until next time, keep on musicin'. This is Mark Lintemeyer signing off. Blind just to the bad that they don't seem to mind.